Uh, I hope you have the words to It Is Well With My Soul memorized so that you were singing or at least saying them along with that Bonnie Good Call on uh, that one because that was one that was in my head all week and would have been another good one to sing in the service this morning, but glad to have it as the offertory. Okay, we have arrived this morning at the conclusion of this summer series, Flesh and Bones, A Biblical Theology of the Body. And of course, as is always the case, there's more that could be said. If I had a couple of more sermons or a couple of more Sundays, uh, I would have preached uh, uh, several other sermons as well. One I would have liked to have preached would have been The Body at Rest. Uh, and consider what does that mean, what does rest mean with respect to our bodies. Another, in light of, uh, of all of this body talk, would have been about the body of Christ, the church as the body of Christ, because I think our focus on the body then illuminates a little bit some of those uh, analogies that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians and other places as well. But in any case, I hope uh, that what we have done so far this summer has been beneficial to you as we've kind of looked at our creation as embodied image bearers and then the impact of the fall into sin on our bodies themselves, then how we are redeemed body and soul by the Lord Jesus Christ. And today then moving into glorification of our bodies. I hope that has been beneficial. Turn with me now to 1 Corinthians 15, either in your Bibles or in your bulletins. I'm kind of going to be toggling between uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 8, and then the verse on the front. So I don't know, whatever is more, uh, whichever is easier for you, Bibles or bulletins, as you would like. In our last sermon, we considered uh, the application of this body-soul redemption secured for us by Jesus to our present lives. That's called our sanctification, our growth in holiness, our growth in Christ-likeness through our union with Christ. So that's our sanctification. And we talked about the fact that sanctification is a struggle, but it is one that has begun because of the redemption in Christ. And this week, we're shifting to a look at the completion of sanctification namely our glorification. So the completion of sanctification is glorification, and these two things are closely related. Uh, scholar F.F. F. Bruce uh, says helpfully this way, the difference between sanctification and glory is one of degree and not kind. Degree and not kind. So that sanctification is glory begun and glory is sanctification completed. Does that make sense, the, the, the way that those things work together? As we are united to Christ, we begin this process called sanctification, and its completion is glory or glorification as we are using the word. Okay, here now as I read for us this portion of the word of God, Paul is addressing the, uh, the bodily confused Corinthians, that's what we'll call them, the bodily confused Corinthians. This is the living word of the living God. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. 
But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, there's another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, which is Christ, by the way, the last Adam became a living, life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from above. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven." I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Great God in heaven. As we come to this text today, Spirit, you who inspired the Apostle to write these words so that they are the very words of God, be with us today and give light to our own hearts so that we can understand these things, so that we can understand what you have revealed to us in your word to be true and made to be true in your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, today... As we conclude this, we are reflecting via the Word of God and these great texts in particular on our bodies in glory. And as we begin that reflection, we should do so in humility. We should do so with appreciation of what I called in the very opening sermon, our finitude. We should recognize that when we speak of these things, when we speak 
of glory itself, we have to recognize that we've been given a glimpse of this grandeur, a, a glimpse of what glory will be like. But now, here's the reality from the words of Scripture itself. Now, when we consider these things, when we think about what's heaven going to be like, we see in a mirror dimly. We see in a mirror dimly. We, we've got some glimpses, and it's good to have them, but it's a dim view that we have right now. Then, when we are there, we will see face to face. And what a glorious day that will be when we see these things face to face with as Job said, with our own eyes. So let's begin today kind of as we did uh, last week, last week reflecting on sanctification. This week, I want to make sure that we understand the term glory and the term glorification. Again, uh, as last week, for some of us, that's a familiar term. For others of us, that's a little bit of a puzzling term, and we want to make sure that we understand what it is. So let's look at our passages together. First of all, I want to look at the Romans 8 passage and note the way uh, that this word or variants of the word are used in these passages. So in Romans chapter 8, the very first verse there that you have, 8.18, it talks about the glory that is going to be revealed to us. In verse 21, it talks about the glory, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And then in verse 30 of that chapter, the concluding verse there that we read this morning, it notes that those who are justified, he also glorified. So glory and glorified are used there in the 1 Corinthians 15 passage, and I won't read all these for us uh, right now, but in verses 40 and 41, he talks about the various types of bodies that God has created and the glory that belongs to each of uh, those various types of body. And then in verse 43, he talks about this fact that the, the body is going to be raised up in glory. Now, we read uh, also this morning a couple of sections from both the Shorter Catechism and the Heidelberg Catechism as well. And in both of those, they help us to see that at our death, we do immediately pass into glory. And at the return of Christ, our bodies, which even when they're in the grave are still united to Christ, but at the return of Jesus Christ, then our bodies will also be raised up in glory and made like Christ's glorious body. We opened our service with the uh, citation from Psalm 24. Our God is the King of glory. He is the King. How do you define the word? How do you, how do you make sense of the word glory with respect to God? He's the King of everything that is majestic, everything that is honorable, holy, beautiful, perfect, magnificent, splendid, precious. That's who he is as the King of of glory. If we looked at Psalm 29, we would see that everything in his temple cries out glory. Everything about God, everything about being in the presence of God is glorious. Glorification, then, is the conclusion of the process whereby in Christ we are transformed into everything we were always meant to be. We are made glorious. We are glorified, and as such, as 
glorified people, we enter into the wondrous presence and experience of the glory of God unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, I know that's using the word a lot of times there, but it's using it in an intentional kind of way to help us to see that's what this glorification is, where we get into the intended purpose that God has for us so that we can glorify him as he then glorifies us as well. Uh, John Murray, who is a theologian I really appreciate quite a bit, and, uh, and especially his writing in these areas, he comments on Romans 8.23, this particular uh, verse in Romans 8.23 that we've looked at and will look at again today. The, the, the section of the verse he comments is on is, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. We are waiting for this. We are waiting for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. And here's what Than Murray says about it. He says, that is glorification. That's glorification. The redemption of the body, the adoption of sons, that is glorification. This is quoting now. It is the complete and final redemption of the whole person when in the integrity of body and spirit, the people of God will be conformed to the image of the risen, exalted, and glorified Redeemer. When the very body of their humiliation, which is this present body, will be conformed to the body of Christ's exaltation. That's what it is. That's what glorification is. And as such, maybe this is important for us to understand, as such, glorification actually doesn't happen when we die. That's not glorification. It's true, as we've read, and we can look at other passages to see this. It's true that when we die, our bodies do enter into glory, but glorification happens when Jesus himself returns and his glory is fully manifested by his Father and death is done away with no more. All of the enemies are under his feet and triumph, his triumph reigns. That is the time when we will receive the redemption of our bodies through the resurrection when Jesus returns. We will all be glorified at the same time. Nobody goes before anybody else in this glorification. We all go at the same time, in a moment, right? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that transformation takes place as our bodies are raised. So that's what glorification is. There's much more we can say about glory, obviously, and about glorification, but hopefully that's enough to give us the foundation from which we can make, as it applies to what we're looking at this summer, the bodies we can make. I want to make three observations that I think are important for us as we wrap this up. Here's the first, then, observation. I want us to consider the promise of complete glorification, the promise of complete glorification. A good work of redemption has begun for those of you who are in Christ. The Spirit has been given. Your spirit, at the moment that the Spirit was given to you, your spirit was revived. Boom, the paddles hit you. You came to life. You came to have a spiritual life at work within you. And you were growing as a result of that. You are growing. I'm growing. But all of us, all of us feel the struggle that is there. 
all of us feel the tension of saying, yes, I'm, I'm growing, but I'm not growing as much as I would like to. I, I still struggle with things that are a part of me that I would like to see those go away. I don't want to have those things anymore. So here's the promise of complete glorification. We're going to see this in a couple of places of Scripture because I want us to see how true and how often it is spoken of. Here's the promise. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. At the day of Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 1.6. The person, the one who began the good work in you, the Lord himself through his spirit will bring that to completion. Your sanctification, which seems right now to be so partial and on certain days to us so pathetic, right? so weak it sometimes feels to us, your sanctification will be brought to its perfect conclusion, to its perfect completeness at the day of Christ Jesus. When Jesus returns bodily, that's when you will be glorified body and soul. Paul goes on in Philippians 3. Now look at the front of your bulletin with me for a moment. So that was Philippians 1. He goes on to say this, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, and this is glorification here, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's the promise. The promise is, right now we're waiting, and when Jesus returns, our bodies will be transformed. Transformed into the glorious likeness of the body of Christ. Okay, I need you to turn now with me to page 7 of your bulletins. The benediction that I have delighted to use for most of the sermons in this series is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I've, I've tried to draw attention to it each time because it's fit, of course, with each of the sermons as we have worked through them. But, but listen to this benediction again. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May he sanctify you not just a little bit. May, may he not just give you a little bit of sanctification, but may he sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, and soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How sure is the promise of your complete sanctification, of your completed glorification? He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. That's how sure it is. The one who calls you is faithful. He will accomplish the good work. All right, now let's look at Romans 8. We've got Romans 8 in front of us. If you know uh, the book of Romans, if, if you've worked through the book of Romans, you know that one of the great things about Romans chapter 8 is that when we get to Romans chapter 8, the Spirit of God explodes off the page. All of a sudden, Paul is talking about this new life that we have in the Spirit, and he's talking about the Spirit of God which has come to us and our spirits. So it is a very spiritual chapter. But here's what I want to say to us. It is an embodied spiritual passage. It is an embodied spiritual chapter. This is not in your bulletins, but verse 11 says this. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus, Christ Jesus, from the dead 
will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who lives in you. It doesn't say the Spirit will also give life to your spirit so that you will live a spiritual life like the Spirit. It says the Spirit will give life to your mortal bodies. Your bodies are involved in this resurrection. Verse 23 that we've pointed at uh, already. We are waiting for the redemption of our bodies. The promise is there. And then listen to how solid the promise is from verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Question, what's the image of the son? Embodied image bearing. The image of the son is not just the image of Jesus, the eternal logos. It's the image of the embodied son. He's the one who is the perfect representation of God. In him, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. You are being conformed to him. You are predestined to it. How sure is predestined when God does the predestining? And if we look now at 1 Corinthians 15, I only want to restrict us, and it's just restricting because the whole chapter is full of it, but I only want to restrict us to one thought, really, in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52, so that we can see the promise. Here's the promise. We shall be changed. We shall all be changed. And when Paul is saying here, we shall all be changed, he doesn't mean that we'll all be disembodied at this point. We'll all be made into just pure spiritual energy. It means a perfected and a glorious body. Nothing less. Nothing less than a completed glorification of us as body and soul image bearers is the promise. That's the promise. And it's on all of those places that we just looked at. Now, this leads us to a second question or a second observation And it's formulated as this section of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15 begins as a question. And it's a question, frankly, that we find here, but many of you have asked this question to me over the years as well. And it goes something like this. What do we understand about this glorified body? What's it going to be like? What's the nature of this glorified body? And the question that comes after it from all of you when we talk about it is, will we recognize one another? Will I know these people here or not? What, what about this glorious body? If I see you, will I actually know that it is you? Now, this question can be asked with sincerity, or it can be asked with sarcastic skepticism. And frankly, to, to be honest, the way it is written here for us, the Corinthians were uh, resurrection-slash-glorified-body skeptics. They they were just skeptical of the whole thing. The whole thing to them sounded somewhat nonsensical, like this is impossible at all. And so when they ask the question, it goes something like this, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they have? Their argument then would go something, I suppose, like this. If a bodily resurrection is promised, and they would be skeptical of that. That's the earlier part of 1 Corinthians 15. But if, let's just say, for the sake of argument, that a bodily resurrection 
is actually promised, they would say, well, what's the use of that? These bodies of ours obviously don't last. They are obviously in a state of entropy. They are losing their energy. They are becoming more and more disorderly. They are prone to dishonor. These bodies of ours are clearly corruptible. They wouldn't last for all eternity. They are, in a word, this would be the Corinthians speaking, mortal. They're in a word mortal. And who would want an embodied eternity in glory with these decidedly inglorious bodies? Who would want that? Do you want eternity in the body that you have right now? That's what the Corinthians were saying. Who wants that? Okay, so you could raise me from the dead. I don't really want to be raised from the dead because this body is a pain. Or it has a lot of pains. We can say it that way. It just doesn't make sense. And here's Paul's delicate reply to that question. Fools. Fools. And that's what he says. He, he, he says it straight up. It's obviously straight to the point. Fools. Here's what he says. Don't you know? Here's, here's elementary things that I guess I have to tell you because of these questions that you're not. Here's the first thing that he says. Don't you know that God is able to do this? That God is able to do this resurrection, this glorification? Verses 38 through 41. He says, God does this, in fact, all the time. God gives suitable bodies in all sorts of situations and all manner of bodies in situations. Verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another kind for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. They're heavenly bodies, they're earthly bodies. There's a glory of the sun, there's a glory of the moon, there's a glory of the stars. And basically what Paul is saying is, listen, God has been giving appropriate bodies for appropriate spaces ever since there was creation. And they're all different. They all fit the places where they are. Don't you think that God's able to give you a body that is suitable for heaven? That is suitable for eternity? So that's, that's don't you know, number one. Don't you know, number one, is that God can do this. Here's don't you know, number two. Don't you know, number two, is Andy's already done it. Not only can he do it, but he's already done it. You see, the man from heaven has already come, and the man from heaven is no longer on the earth. The man from heaven is actually now in glory. So I, I said this a little bit. It's a little bit of confusing language. The man from earth is obviously Adam. The man from heaven is Christ. But what we want to see there with that is it's a man from heaven. Now, when Jesus came down from heaven, he wasn't a man. He was the Son of God. He became united with humanity from dust through Mary. And at that point, he becomes the man from heaven. There are two things that are there. That's not one that, that becomes one thing, but it's two aspects of the one thing. He is the God-man. He is the man from heaven. And Paul's point here is this is already done. The God-man has already come to earth, and he's already now ascended and in the place of glory. Not only can God do this, God's already done it. His son is already in that place, having received that body. 
Number three, don't you know, is that they should be able to understand and comprehend the realities of, and this is going to sound continuity and discontinuity. They should be able to comprehend the realities of something that is, has continu continuity to it and discontinuity. The continuity of the resurrection is that it is we ourselves who are raised. Our souls, our bodies, that is what is raised. Resurrection doesn't make any sense if it's not us. Our souls, our bodies being raised up. We will be, we are people. We will not be stars. We will not be angels. We will not be some kind of mythical creature. You won't have wings. If you were looking forward to wings in eternity, you probably should give that up. You can go paragliding, but you won't have wings itself, themselves. We're not going to be avatars of ourselves. We will be us. That's continuity. But there's also going to be a discontinuity. Or to put it more positively, and if the word discontinuity sounds odd to you, we're going to be changed. <laughs> we are going to be changed. We will be the same as we are and different than we are. And then Paul gives us a variety of analogies to make this clear. In the first place, he gives the analogy of the seed. He said, a seed doesn't remain a seed. The seed, as the seed dies, if you will, the, the seed is destroyed as the seed becomes what the seed was intended to be. And he gives the example of a kernel of wheat. When the seed is there, it looks like a seed. When it grows, it looks like wheat. It doesn't look like a seed anymore because the seed has effectively died that the new life, the body that it was intended to be, springs forth from that. So there's continuity, it's still wheat, but there's discontinuity, it's now the body as it was intended to be. So that's an illustration by which Paul is simply saying, he's not trying to describe shapes and things like that, he's just taking a principle. He's taking a principle and saying there's, there's, there's continuity and discontinuity in the life of seed, of an acorn. But in substance, still, significant change is needed because, and, and here I want to address a verse very specifically for us. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, when I read that for you a little while earlier, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Did you, did you turn and go, wait, has this whole sermon series been for naught? <laughs> If, in fact, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, what are we saying here about the body? Maybe the reality is we do need to get rid of the bodies. It is very possible for us to misunderstand what Paul is saying here, but I beg us not to. The entire chapter is about the resurrection of the body. Okay, so Paul is not in the middle of a chapter on the resurrection of the body suddenly saying bodies aren't resurrected uh, and you can't have physicality or materiality in heaven. Instead, what he is saying is this body as presently constituted, a.k.a. flesh and blood. And that's all we're saying. This body, as it is presently constituted, is not suitable for life in heaven. He's not making a statement about physicality per se, but what he's saying is that this body that you and I have right now cannot stand up to the glorious rigor 
to the weightiness of the new heavens and the new earth. If this body were in heaven, you're right, Corinthians, it wouldn't last. But that's not the way it happens. The body will be changed. So, uh, by the way, this is a cross-reference here to C.S. Lewis and the Great Divorce. Uh, if you haven't read that, you can read that book and you'll understand uh, a, a look at this idea of the body here. Here's what Paul is saying. He says, this present flesh and blood has been devastated by sin. And because of sin, we were, our first parents were prohibited from eating of the tree of life, which I think, had they been allowed to eat of it, would have secured its eternal permanency and its eternal spirituality. But they were banished from that. They, we, have not been able to eat of that tree. And as it is then, this is a natural body, to use Paul's language. It is, if you will, merely a natural body. It's a dusty body. And as such, it's characterized by four elements that flow from the fall and from our banishment. And the things that are listed right here in verses 42 through 44 and then through the rest of the section that I read. This body as it's presently constituted is characterized by perishability, by corruption, by decay. Those are other words that you could use right here in this section. It's characterized not by glory, but by dishonor, by humiliation. Its sinful flesh is still hanging around. It's characterized by weakness. I know that there is a period in our lives when we are growing stronger, and that period comes, and then it goes very quickly, and then for the rest of our lives, we're actually growing weaker at that point. And it's characterized, if you look down at verse 53, if you want to give one, it's characterized by mortality. This present body is, as it's called here, a mortal body. It's a mortal body. But the reconstitution of our bodies after the image of the risen and exalted man of heaven renews all of these. And, it, of course, the way he works through it here, you flip them, over, you flip them into the opposite. So instead of a perishable body in eternity, we will have an imperishable body in eternity. Why? Because we're clothed with Jesus Christ, and when Jesus Christ went into the grave, he saw no corruption. There was no corruption of his flesh. No spices were actually needed for him because there wasn't going to be any decay. There wasn't going to be any stench coming from the body of Jesus, and there won't be any stench coming from your bodies in eternity either because there's no decay. There's no perishability that takes place in the eternal body. And instead of being a body of dishonor, it will be a body of glory because we'll be clothed in the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has a glorified body, and so are our bodies to be honored. It is the fulfillment of the original intent, right? We looked at this in Psalm 8. God created man a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. That's what Paul is saying here. He's picking up on it and saying, in that day, you're going to be crowned with glory and honor and honor. Your body, instead of dishonor, will be a body of glory. The sin will be no more. We'll have power instead of weakness. Jesus was resurrected as the Son of God in power. I don't think we should think of ourselves in the future as some kind of superhero beings, 
But nevertheless, we will have power, more power than we have right now, the power of an indestructible life at work within us in Christ, and then we will be clothed with immortality. Last week we read from Romans 6, Romans 6, 9 says this, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. When you are clothed with Christ, that clothing is on you. When you are raised, you will never die again. It will become the immortal body. In other words, all of the fall and all of its impact on the body will be undone, and we will have glorious, immortal bodies fit for the new heavens and the new earth with which to enjoy and glorify our God, which gives us our third and final observation, and obviously I'll need to be brief here. Our glory, our glorification, and speaking of our glorification, it's not just kind of nice information for us to know about the future so that we're aware of what is taking place. Instead, this idea, these promises that are set before us here are for now. So the Spirit of God has started this new life in us. And while there are probably any number of, uh, of applications we could draw from it, I just want to use what's in the text, in the text that are before us today, the therefores that are in our text. These are from the passages. Here, here's the outtake. Here's, here's the application of this glorious body, this glorification that we will have. First of all, it's this. Future glorification is grounds for present endurance. Present endurance. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or, that's from Romans 8.18. Or in the words from, uh, from 1 Corinthians 15.58, be steadfast, immovable. So endure, be steadfast, immovable, and then Philippians 4.1, I didn't read this section on the front of your bulletins, but Paul says that we're going to have this glorious body, transformed lowly body. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. Thus in the Lord, my beloved. Endurance, steadfastness, immovable, stand firm. We need to have it because in this world, we groan. In this world, we groan. There's a lot of groaning that takes place in the world. There's groaning that takes place in Romans chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. There's groaning that takes place in this world. And if you're going to endure groaning, or if you're going to survive groaning, you have to have endurance. That's number one of the therefores. Number two, future glorification is grounds for present hope. Endurance, and then secondly here, hope. Your endurance isn't so supposed to be a stoic, indifferent, stiff upper lip. Our endurance is hopeful. It is expectant waiting because our groans that we have in this world aren't just the groans that say, life stinks and then you die. Instead, they're the groans that are characteristic of birth pangs. They're groans of expectation. They're groans of hope. Romans 8 gets this idea by comparing both the creation and people as well, linked together. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning, verse 22, sorry, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The groaning is there because we are not yet what we will be. And we live in this world where we, in, we will endure this suffering. And so we groan. We groan saying, come, Lord Jesus. Transform us, Lord Jesus. Transform and renew this world of pain, this world of sorrow. It's a groan of expectation that is hopeful. For in this, verse 24, continuing, in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? You don't see your glorification right now. You don't even see the glorified Jesus right now. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Third, and finally, future glorification is ground for present work. Endurance, hope, and work. The hope of glory doesn't make us passive. We don't hear of the hope of the glory to come and say, fantastic, I don't need to finish this project. I don't need to finish this project because Jesus is coming back. Get me a glass of wine and I'm sitting on the patio. Now, there's a time and a place for everything, right? There's a time and a season. We go to Ecclesiastes 3 for that. But that's not the point. The point is that it doesn't make us passive to know about the glory that is to come, about the completion that God himself is to do. Instead, it makes us active. And that's why then Paul can say at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, he's done all of this on the resurrection, and he says, therefore, be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding in it. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. To be able to work, to glorify and enjoy God, that's the original glory and honor. That was the original intent with which we were created. Brothers and sisters, we will be changed. John Murray, at the end of his great book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, is talking about glorification. And he's talking about the heresies that have existed throughout the life of the church, uh, in, and one in particular, the division of materiality and spirituality, as if these two things can't go together at all. And here's one of the things he says, the biblical doctrine of immortality, if we may use that term, is the doctrine of glorification. And glorification is resurrection. Without the resurrection of the body from the grave and the restoration of human nature to its completeness after the pattern of Christ's resurrection on the third day and according to the likeness of the glorified human nature in which he will appear on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. Without that, there's no glorification. Without your body being raised up after the pattern of Christ's resurrection, there is no glorification. It is not the vague sentimentality and idealism so characteristic of those whose interest is merely the immortality of the soul. Here we have the concreteness and realism of the Christian hope epitomized in the resurrection to life everlasting and signalized by the descent of Christ from heaven with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. It's concrete. It's concrete. 
It's an embodied spirituality. It's an embodied glorification that is ours. The conclusion then to the series. Our God made us in his image, and we are embodied image bearers. In his embodied son, he loves me, body and soul. He's redeemed you, body and soul. And your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is the temple where God has taken up residence. We may not be able to imagine fully life in a glorified body, but it will be glorious. Therefore, in light of the fact that we are being prepared for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, hear these words from Scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. Romans 12, I appeal to you therefore, brethren, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And 1 Corinthians 6, therefore, glorify God in your body. Lord, thank you for the way that you have created us and are recreating us. And thank you that you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Help us to believe that and then be about the work with endurance and with hope that you have given us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.